Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're going to be continuing with Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis. It's a long chapter this week, so we're going to split it to finish it off next week. And it's basically about the lives of different communist women, their stories, and how they contributed to the struggle in different ways. So, let's get started. Chapter 10. Communist Women In 1848, the year Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published their Communist Manifesto, Europe was the scene of countless revolutionary uprisings. One of the participants in the Revolution of 1848, an artillery officer and close co-worker of Marx and Engels, named Joseph Wedemeyer, immigrated to the United States and founded the first Marxist organization in the country's history. Footnote 1. When Wedemeyer established the Proletarian League in 1852, no women appear to have been associated with the group. If indeed there were any women involved, they have long since faded into historical anonymity. Over the next few decades, women continued to be active in their own labor associations, in the anti-slavery movement, and in the developing campaign for their own rights. But, to all intents and purposes, they appear to have been absent from the ranks of the Marxist socialist movement. Like the Proletarian League, the Working Men's National Association, and the Communist Club were utterly dominated by men. Even the Socialist Labour Party was also predominantly male. Footnote 2. By the time the Socialist Party was founded in 1900, the composition of the socialist movement had begun to change. As the general demand for women's equality grew stronger, women were increasingly attracted to the struggle for social change. They began to assert their right to participate in this new challenge to the oppressive structures of their society. From 1900 on, to a greater or lesser extent, the Marxist left would feel the influence of its female adherents. As the main champion of Marxism for almost two decades, the Socialist Party supported the battle for women's equality. For many years, in fact, it was the only political party to advocate women's suffrage. Footnote 3. Thanks to such socialist women as Pauline Newman and Rose Schneiderman, a working-class suffrage movement was forged, breaking the decade-long stronghold of middle-class women on the mass campaign for the vote. Footnote 4. By 1908, the Socialist Party had created a National Women's Commission. On March 8th of that year, women socialists active on New York's Lower East Side organized a mass demonstration in support of equal suffrage, whose anniversary continues to be observed all over the world as International Women's Day. Footnote 5. When the Communist Party was founded in 1919, actually, two Communist parties which later united were established, former Socialist Party women were among its earliest leaders and activists. Mother Ella Reeve Bluer, Anita Whitney, Margaret Prevy, Kate Sadler Greenhalge. Rose Pastor-Stokes, and Jeanette Pearl were all communists who had been associated with the left wing of the Socialist Party. Footnote 6. Although the International Workers of the World was not a political party, and in fact opposed to the organization of political parties, it was the second major influence on the formation of the Communist Party. The IWW, popularly known as the Wobblies, was founded in June of 1905. Defining itself as an industrial union, 
the IWW proclaimed that there could never be a harmonious relationship between the capitalist class and the workers it employed. The Wobblies' ultimate goal was socialism, and their strategy was unrelenting class struggle. When Big Jill Haywood convened that first meeting, two of the leading labor organizers who sat on the platform were women, Mother Mary Jones and Lucy Parsons. While both the Socialist Party and the IWW admitted women to their ranks and encouraged them to become leaders and agitators, only the IWW embraced a complementary policy of forthright struggle against racism. Under the leadership of Daniel de Leon, the Socialist Party did not acknowledge the unique oppression of black people. Although the majority of black people were agricultural workers, sharecroppers, tenant farmers, and farm laborers, the Socialists argued that only the proletarians were relevant to their movement. Even the outstanding leader Eugene Debs argued that black people required no overall defense of their rights to be equal and free as a group. Since the Socialists' overriding concern was the struggle between capital and labor, so Debs maintained, we have nothing special to offer the Negro. Footnote 7 As for the international workers of the world, their main goal was to organize the wage-earning class and to develop revolutionary socialist class consciousness. Unlike the Socialist Party, however, the IWW focused explicit attention on the special problems of black people. According to Mary White Ovington, quote, There are two organizations in this country that have shown they do care about full rights for the Negro. The first is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The second organization that attacks Negro segregation is the Industrial Workers of the World. The IWW has stood with the Negro. End quote. Footnote 8. Helen Holman was a black socialist, a leading spokesperson in the campaign to defend her imprisoned party leader, Kate Richards O'Hare. As a black woman, however, Helen Holman was a rarity within the ranks of the Socialist Party. Prior to World War II, the numbers of black women working in the industry were negligible. As a consequence, they were all but ignored by Socialist Party recruiters. The Socialists' posture of negligence vis-à-vis -vis black women was one of the unfortunate legacies the Communist Party would have to overcome. According to the Communist Party leader and historian, William Z. Foster, quote, During the early 1920s, the party was neglectful of the particular demands of Negro women in industry. End quote. Footnote 9. Over the next decade, however, communists came to recognize the centrality of racism in U.S. society. They developed a serious theory of black liberation and forged a consistent activist record in the overall struggle against racism. Lucy Parsons Lucy Parsons remains one of the few black women whose name has occasionally appeared in the chronicles of the U.S. labor movement. Almost universally, however, she is simplistically identified as the devoted wife of the Haymarket martyr Albert Parsons. To be sure, Lucy Parsons was one of her husband's most militant defenders, but she was far more than a faithful wife and angry widow who wanted to defend and avenge her husband. As Caroline Asbach's recent biography, footnote 10, confirms, her journalistic and agitational defense of the working class as a whole spanned a period of more than 60 years. Lucy Parsons' involvement in labor struggles began almost a decade before the Haymarket Massacre and continued for another 55 years afterward. Her political development ranged from her youthful advocacy of anarchism to her membership in the Communist Party during her mature years. 
Born in 1853, Lucy Parsons became active in the Socialist Labour Party as early as 1877. Over the years to come, this anarchist organization's newspaper, The Socialist, would publish her articles and poems, and Parsons would also become an active organizer for the Chicago Working Women's Union. Footnote 11. Following the police-instigated riot on May 1, 1886, in Chicago's Haymarket Square, her husband was one of the eight radical labor leaders arrested by the authorities. Lucy Parsons immediately initiated a militant campaign to free the Haymarket defendants. As she traveled throughout the country, she became known as a prominent labor leader and a leading advocate of anarchism. Her reputation caused her to become an all-too-frequent target of repression. In Columbus, Ohio, for example, the mayor banned a speech she was scheduled to deliver during the month of March, and her refusal to respect this banning order led the police to throw her in jail. Footnote 12. In city after city, quote, Halls were closed to her at the last moment. Detectives stood in every corner of the meeting halls. Police kept her under constant surveillance. End quote. Footnote 13. Even as her husband was being executed, Lucy Parsons and her two children were arrested by Chicago police, one of whom made the comment, That woman is more to be feared than a thousand rioters. Footnote 14. Although she was black, a fact miscegenation laws have often caused her to conceal, and although she was a woman, Lucy Parsons argued that racism and sexism were overshadowed by the capitalists' overall exploitation of the working class. Since they were victims of capitalist exploitation, said Parsons, black people and women, no less than white people and men, should devote all their energies to the class struggle. In her eyes, black people and women did not suffer special forms of oppression, and there was no real need for mass movements to oppose racism and sexism explicitly. Sex and race, according to Lucy Parsons' theory, were facts of existence manipulated by employers who sought to justify their greater exploitation of women and people of color. If black people suffered the brutality of lynch law, it was because their poverty as a group made them the most vulnerable workers of all. Quote, Are there any so stupid, Parsons asked in 1886, as to believe these outrages have been heaped upon the Negro because he is black? Footnote 15. Not at all. It is because he is poor. It is because he is dependent, because he is poorer as a class than his white, wage slave, brother of the North. End quote. Footnote 16. Lucy Parsons and Mother Mary Jones were the first two women to join the radical labor organization known as the International Workers of the World. Highly respected in the labor movement, both were invited to sit in the presidium alongside Eugene Debs and Big Bill Haywood during the 1905 founding convention of the IWW. In the speech Lucy Parsons delivered to the convention delegates, she revealed her special sensitivity to the oppression of working women, who, in her view, were manipulated by the capitalists as they sought to reduce the wages of the entire working class. Quote, We, the women of this country, have no ballot even if we wish to use it. But we have our labor. Wherever wages are to be reduced, the capitalist class uses women to reduce them. End quote. Footnote 17. Moreover, during this era when the plight of prostitutes was virtually ignored, Parsons told the IWW convention that she also spoke for, quote, my sisters whom I can see in the night when I go out in Chicago. End quote. Footnote 18. 
During the 1920s, Lucy Parsons began to associate herself with the struggles of the Young Communist Party, one of the many people who was deeply impressed by the 1917 Workers' Revolution in Russia. She became confident that eventually the working class could triumph in the United States of America. When communists and other progressive forces founded the International Labour Defense in 1925, Parsons became an active worker for the new group. She fought for the freedom of Tom Mooney in California, for the Scottsboro Nine in Alabama, and for the young black communist Angelo Herndon, whom Georgia authorities had imprisoned. Footnote 19. It was in 1939, according to her biographer's research, that Lucy Parsons formally joined the Communist Party. Footnote 20. When she died in 1942, a tribute in the Daily Worker described her as, quote, a link between the labor movement of the present and the great historic event of the 1880s. She was one of America's truly great women, fearless and devoted to the working class. End quote. Footnote 21. Ella Reeve Bluer. Born in 1862, the remarkable labor organizer and agitator for women's rights, black equality, peace, and socialism, who was popularly known as Mother Bluer, became a member of the Socialist Party soon after it was founded. She went on to become a socialist leader and a living legend for the working class across the country. Hitchhiking from one end of the United States to the other, she became the heart and soul of untold numbers of strikes. Streetcar operators in Philadelphia heard her first strike speeches. In other parts of the country, miners, textile workers, and sharecroppers were among the workers who benefited from her astounding oratorical talents and her powerful skills as an organizer. At the age of 62, Mother Bluer was still thumbing rides from one state to another. Footnote 22. When she was 78, Mother Bluer published the story of her life as a labor organizer, from her pre-socialist days through the period of her Communist Party membership. As a socialist, her working-class consciousness did not include an explicit awareness of black people's special oppression. As a communist, however, Mother Bluer fought numerous manifestations of racism and urged others to follow her example. In 1929, for example, when the International Labor Defense held its convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Quote, we had engaged rooms for all the delegates in the Monogahala Hotel. When we arrived late at night with 25 Negro delegates, the manager of the hotel said that while they could stay there that night, they must all get out immediately the next morning. Next morning, we voted that the whole convention should adjourn to the hotel in an orderly fashion. We marched to the hotel carrying banners emphasizing no discrimination. We filed into the lobby, which by that time was filled with newspapermen, policemen, and curious crowds. End quote. Footnote 23. During the early 1930s, Mother Bluer addressed a meeting in Loop City, Nebraska, in support of women who had struck against their poultry farm employers. The strike assembly was violently assaulted by a racist mob opposed to the presence of black people at the meeting. When the police arrived, Mother Bluer was arrested, together with a black woman and her husband. The black woman, Mrs. Floyd Booth, was a leading member of the local anti-war committee, and her husband was an activist in the town's unemployed council. When the local farmers raised sufficient bail money to obtain Mother Bluer's release, she refused their aid, insisting that she would not leave until the Booths could accompany her. Footnote 24. Quote, 
I felt I could not accept the bail and leave the two Negro comrades in jail, in an atmosphere so dangerously charged with bitter hate of Negroes. End quote, footnote 25. During this period, Mother Bluer organized a U.S. delegation to attend an international women's conference in Paris. Four of the women included in the delegation were black. Quote, Capitola Tasker, Alabama sharecropper, tall and graceful, the life of the whole delegation. Lulia Jackson, elected by the Pennsylvania miners, a woman who represented the mothers of the Scottsboro boys. And Mabel Byrd, a brilliant young undergraduate of the University of Washington who had had a position with the International Labor Office in Geneva. End quote. Footnote 26. At the 1934 Paris Conference, Capitola Tasker was one of the three U.S. women elected to serve as a member of the Assembly's Executive Committee, along with Mother Bloor and the woman representing the Socialist Party. Mabel Byrd, the black college graduate, was elected as one of the conference secretaries. Footnote 27. Lulia Jackson, the black representative of Pennsylvania Miners, emerged as one of the Paris Women's Conference's leading personalities. In her persuasive response to the pacifist faction attending the gathering, she argued that support for the war against fascism was the sole means of guaranteeing a meaningful peace. During the course of the women's deliberations, committed pacifists had complained, quote, I think there is too much about fighting in that anti-war manifesto. It says fight against war, fight for peace, fight, fight, fight. We are women, we are mothers, we don't want to fight. We know that even when our children are bad, we are nice to them, and we win them by love, not by fighting them. End quote. Footnote 28. Lulia Jackson's counter-argument was forthright and lucid. Quote, Ladies, it has just been said that we must not fight, that we must be gentle and kind to our enemies, to those who are for war. I can't agree with that. Everyone knows the cause of war. It is capitalism. We can't just give those bad capitalists their supper and put them to bed the way we do with our children. We must fight them. End quote. Footnote 29. As Mother Bluer relates in her autobiography, quote, Everyone laughed and applauded even the pacifist. Footnote 30. And the anti-war manifesto was consequently approved by the entire body. When the conference was addressed by Capitola Tasker, the black sharecropper from Alabama, they heard her compare the current European fascism with the racist terror suffered by black people in the United States. Having vividly described the southern and mob murders, she acquainted the Paris delegates with the violent repression aimed at sharecroppers who were attempting to organize in Alabama. Her own opposition to fascism ran deep, so Capitola Tasker explained, for she herself had already been victimized by its terrible ravages. She concluded her speech with the Sharecroppers song, which she adapted to fit the occasion. Quote, like a tree that's standing by the water, we shall not be moved. We're against war and fascism. We shall not be moved. End quote. Footnote 31. As the U.S. delegation returned home by boat, Mother Bloor re recorded Capitola Tasker's moving testimony about her Paris experiences. Quote, Mother, when I get back to Alabama and go out to that cotton patch back of our little old shack, I'll stand there thinking to myself, Capitola, did you really go over there to Paris and see all those wonderful women and hear all those great talks, or was it just a dream that you were over there? And if it turns out, 
that it really wasn't a dream, why mother, I'm just going to broadcast all over Alabama, all that I've learned over here, and tell them how women from all over the world are fighting to stop the kind of terror we have in the South, and to stop war. End quote. Footnote 32. As Mother Bloor and her Communist Party comrades concluded, the working class cannot assume its historical role as a revolutionary force if workers do not struggle relentlessly against the social poison of racism. The long list of stunning accomplishments associated with the name of Ella Reeve Bloor reveals that this white communist woman was a deeply principled ally of the black liberation movement. Anita Whitney When Anita Whitney was born in 1867 to a wealthy San Francisco family, no one would have suspected that she would eventually be the chairperson of the California Communist Party. Perhaps she was destined to become a political activist, for as a fresh graduate of Wellesley, the prestigious New England Women's College, she did volunteer charity and settlement housework, and soon became an active champion of women's suffrage. Upon her return to California, Anita Whitney joined the Equal Suffrage League and was elected president in time to see her state become the sixth in the nation to extend the vote to women. Footnote 33. In 1914, Anita Whitney joined the Socialist Party. Despite her party's posture of relative indifference toward black people's struggles, she readily supported anti-racist causes. When the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was founded, Whitney enthusiastically agreed to serve as a member of its executive committee. Footnote 34. Having identified with the positions of left-wing members of the Socialist Party, she joined those who established the Communist Labour Party in 1919. Footnote 35. Shortly thereafter, this group merged with the Communist Party, USA. 1919 was the year of the infamous anti-communist raids initiated by Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. Anita was destined to become one of the many victims of the Palmer raids. She was informed that a speech she was scheduled to deliver before club women associated with the Oakland Center of the California Civic League had been banned by the authorities. But despite the official prohibition, she spoke on November 28, 1919, about the Negro problem in the United States. Footnote 36. Her remarks were sharply focused on the issue of lynching. Quote, Since 1890, when our statistics have their beginning, there have occurred in these United States 3,228 lynchings, 2,500 of colored men and 50 of colored women. I would that I could leave the subject with these bare facts recording numbers, but I feel that we must face all the barbarity of the situation in order to do our part in blotting this disgrace from our country's record. End quote. Footnote 37. She went on to pose a question to the audience of white club women. Did they know that, quote, a colored man once said that if he owned hell and Texas, he would prefer to rent out Texas and live in hell. End quote. Footnote 38. His reasoning, she explained in a serious vein, was based on the fact that Texas could claim the third largest number of racist mob murders committed throughout the southern states. Only Georgia and Mississippi could boast more. In 1919, it was still something of a rarity for a white person to appeal to others of her race to stand up against the scourge of lynching. The generalized racist propaganda, and the repeated evocation of the mythical black rapist in particular, had resulted in the desired division and alienation, even in progressive circles. 
white people were often hesitant to speak out against lynchings, since they were justified as unfortunate reactions to black sexual attacks against white womanhood in the South. Anita Whitney was one of those white people whose vision remained clear despite the power of the prevailing racist propaganda, and she was willing to risk the consequences of her anti-racist stance. Although it was clear that she would be arrested, she chose to speak about lynching to the white Oakland club women. Sure enough, she was taken into custody at the conclusion of her speech, and charged by the authorities with criminal syndicalism. Whitney was later convicted and sentenced to San Quentin Prison, where she spent several weeks before her release on appeal bond. It was not until 1927 that Anita Whitney was pardoned by the governor of California. Footnote 39. As a 20th century white woman, Anita Whitney was indeed a pioneer in the struggle against racism. Together with her black comrades, she and others like her would forge the Communist Party's strategy for working-class emancipation. In this strategy, the fight for black liberation would be a central ingredient. In 1936, Anita Whitney became the state chairperson of the Communist Party of California, and was elected soon thereafter to serve on the party's national committee. Quote, Once she was asked, Anita, how do you regard the Communist Party? What has it come to mean to you? Why, she smiled incredulously, a bit taken aback by such an amazing question. Why, it has given purpose to my life. The Communist Party is the hope of the world. End quote. Footnote 40. And that concludes our reading for this week. As I said at the top, we'll be finishing the chapter off next week, and then any thoughts I might have on it will appear there. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts about video games, movies, anime, books. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.